The text for tonight is from uh, Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. And um, if you can tonight, just keep the slides up there until I go to the next uh, text in the sermon. Um, I can't see who's running slides up there because the lights are in my eyes. But um, Romans 12, 1 through 8 is our text tonight. And uh, you can read along also in the Pew Bible if you want to keep a Bible in front of you just to follow along. I will be referencing some other texts in the book of Romans, so you may want to jump back and forth to different things. Romans 12, verse 1, this is from the NIV. <clears throat> Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true, your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraged, to encourage, then encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're a regular attender here, um, there has not been an apocalypse. Uh, there has not been a rapture. Uh, people are on spring break this week. And um, I got text messages from people that they were at the Honda Classic held up in uh, the bear trap on, on, on like the backside of the golf course there. So they're like, I, I can't make it tonight. So, um, but some of you are here and we're so happy you're here. Uh, tonight as we dive into this uh, new month and this new theme for this month. Now, we've been in a, in a year-long series called Rooted, but this month we're diving into the topic of wisdom, into the theme of wisdom. What does it mean to be rooted in wisdom? Um, here, here at our church at Providencia, we talk a lot about uh, our vision, which means so that all may flourish. Uh, we say that, you know, we exist for the sake of our city. And as we think about the idea of what it means to be rooted, what does it mean to be people who are rooted? One of the images that's come to mind for us is from Isaiah 61, verses 3 and 4. And I'm just going to read it for you here real quick. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the, the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And as we think about what does it mean to be rooted, our goal, our hope is that we actually would be a church of oaks, oaks of righteousness, oaks of wisdom, 
that we would be those people, that we would help restore our city, rebuild our city, so that all in our city may flourish, because that is not the case right now. All in our city are not uh, flourishing. And this might be much easier said than done. You know, we talk a lot here at Providencia about being connected to our hearts, and we emphasize the significance of what does it mean uh, to feel. And in the uh, tradition that I came from in my church, there was a lot of focus on the mind. It was very cerebral. Um, I, in fact, I, I read a lot of books when I was in college and when I was in seminary that were very, very much focused on mind, my mind. And if I could just think the right way, then I would live, live the right way. And over the course of my time and my own journey, I realized that some of my traditions downfall, they, they have uh, strengths, but some of my traditions downfall was that they neglected the heart and they neglected the emotions, also the Holy Spirit. Things that seemed a little bit out of control, right? And for some of you, you may have come from backgrounds where you felt like church was too emotional or people's experience of God was too emotional. And by that, what I mean is that maybe you came from a charismatic background or Pentecostal background where it was all about emotion. It was all about feeling. And I've been a part of that tradition as well for seasons of my life. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being connected to what it is you're feeling, not manufacturing some feeling. And to be curious about what it is that you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And to explore that, not to neglect it. That if we neglect it, we're neglecting a part of something that God has given to us. And we need to pay attention to it. And we also need, at the same time, to pay attention to our mind. But I will tell you that it has been through connecting with my heart, connecting with my emotions, that the colors and the sounds and the smells and the emotions of Scripture have come off the page for me. It's much easier for me now to be rooted in the stories of Scripture, in the poetry of Scripture, in the letters of Scripture now, because I'm connected to my heart. I feel that I'm more connected to the heart of Scripture. The heart, the heart of the authors, the heart of the audience. It's been an incredible journey, and I'm grateful for it. And tonight we're going to be talking about the heart, but we're also going to be talking about the mind. We're going to be talking tonight and this month about wisdom. Wisdom. Proverbs 4 7 says, Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. And I have a question for you tonight. I know I did this last week. You don't have to close your eyes tonight. Um, but my question for you is this. When you think of wise people throughout your life, who comes to mind? When you think of wise people that have been in your life, who comes to mind? What made them wise? Was there an experience where you saw their wisdom? Or was it kind of their aura? 
You know, did they just always look like Gandalf, like dressed like Gandalf? Or were, did they, did they um, was there like an experience where their wisdom kind of like rose up and you were like, oh man, this is a wise person. Were they a cold person or a warm person? How did they treat you? How did they treat others? This is a curious question. I said, what did they do for work? What kind of work were they in? How old were they? What was their relationship like with God? What kind of clothes did they wear? Now, the only reason I asked that last question is because my professor in seminary, who really was like the, the embodiment of wisdom, I think he wore the same suit every day. I think he wore some kind of like clunky shoes. You know, they weren't too stylish, not too fancy. And he was old. Like he was older than my grandparents, I feel like, when he was teaching my class. And you know, like being old uh, wasn't really fashionable when I was going to seminary. Uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, and, and so what was it, though, about this man that when he came to class, I'm telling you, I was hanging on every single word that this guy said. So first day of class, we have our textbooks stacked on, on the desk, most of them written by him. And uh, he walks in and gives us a notebook, a notebook, like a, you know, white notebook with the little clips in the middle. I don't even know what those things are called, binders or something, right? He walks in. We each get this notebook that's thicker than our textbook. And it's his notes on the book of Proverbs. And mind you, his textbook is right next to it, but his notes are even thicker. And this is, this is how he starts off class. Do you ever think about all the knowledge we pour into our brains and how soon they will turn into mush in the grave? I think about it. That's like the first thing that he starts off class with. This guy is so old. He's like, you know, death is like right around the door here. And, and he's like, we're sitting there studying. I'm going to have to read all this material all semester, right? I'm just going to be like... Oh my God, I'm not going to have any social life at all. I'm barely going to see my wife and I'm just going to be reading this stuff. And he's like, you're pouring all this stuff in and it's just going to turn to mush in the grave. I was like, dear Lord, what am I doing here? Then he goes on to say, woman wisdom speaks as a prophet. Indeed, appeals to the mind. But to know wisdom is more a matter of a loving heart. What? So we got all this material here on the table that we're going to have to read. And he's saying, it's not just about what you're putting in your mind. If it doesn't transform your heart. If it doesn't transform your heart. And how do I know this is what he said? Because it was a long time ago. Because it's in the notebook. Uh, all the things he said in class were in the notebook already. Um, the possession of wisdom enables all to cope with life 
and to achieve what would otherwise be impossible. Through their exceptional wisdom, listen to this, weak and vulnerable creatures, such as the ant and the coney, cope and survive against inserpable odds. Proverbs 30, 24 through 8. That's him summarizing. And when he read that, I was like, I want that. If that's what wisdom is, I want that. To be wise is to be righteous. And to be righteous is to be wise. And wisdom is a gift given freely by God. The wise internalize the wisdom of God. And it transforms their hearts. They live righteous lives. And this is how Walkie went on to define righteousness. Because his righteousness is the same thing as wisdom. Wisdom is the same thing as righteousness. He goes on to define it this way. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And I just sat there listening to this man. Every word he said, I wanted to learn from him. I looked forward to being in that class every day. Sometimes I will tell you that I even felt overwhelmed by his wisdom. It was so deep and so nuanced and so complex at times that I was like, you know, just like, gosh, I need more coffee or something. But it was, he's so wise. And he was able to speak into things and areas and places of my life I hadn't even thought of. So wise. I was sharing with our staff before um, worship started tonight that I know that we have an epidemic of loneliness right now. And what I feel like we also have is a shortage, which would be a shortage of community. We have a shortage of wisdom. We have a shortage of wisdom. We are desperate for wisdom in our world today. In verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... He starts off there in verse 1 with, therefore, this whole book that Paul's writing to the church in Rome, the first uh, 11 chapters, Paul's been speaking to the church. And the church in Rome was made up more of Gentiles, meaning people who were not Jewish, than there were Jewish people. And there was this problem that Paul was having to deal with because he himself was Jewish. And that is that the Jewish people had begun to be a little bit elitist. In their thinking, meaning we are the chosen people and you're not. And then what happened as the church was growing in Rome and more Gentiles, more people who weren't Jewish started to become Christians. And less Jewish people were part of their denomination, part of their, their, their church there, part of their faith. Guess what happened to the Gentiles? Is they began to feel like, oh, we're the chosen people and you're not. It's funny how quickly people who begin to feel chosen can begin to feel like elitist. 
And Paul's been spending the first 11 chapters breaking down all the barriers, all the walls. He's been attacking everything. Jewish people, you think this makes you righteous? You think this is what brings you in? No. And he like attacks it. Gentiles, you think this is what has brought you in? This is like why you deserve to be here? No. Nobody deserves to be here. Essentially, he says, everybody's created in the image of God. All of you have sinned and are deserving of death. And Christ has had mercy on all of us. He's had mercy on every single one of us. No one has a righteous stand to stand on here. None of us is righteous. No one deserves to be in this more than anybody else. It's by grace. So for those first 11 chapters, he's he's trying to break down all these barriers and trying to bring them together. And then we get to the end of chapter 11. And he essentially says, God owes us nothing. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn back to that chapter. He kind of ends there with this prayer that basically God owes us nothing. We have given him nothing. And yet he is offering to us the depths of his riches, the depths of the riches of his wisdom. We've given God nothing. He owes us nothing. And yet he wants to offer us freely the depth of his rich wisdom. The second part of verse 1 there, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Offer your bodies, not just a part of your body, not just your heart, not just your mind, not just your soul, but your hands, your feet, all of your body. Offer your bodies to build to heal, to restore for the sake of your community, for the sake of your city. That God calls us, he calls that worship. That's righteous living. That is the way of wisdom. This is worship. And that doesn't just happen here on Sunday nights for an hour. It happens in what you're doing every day, Monday through Saturday. The work you do when you go to work every day. That is your opportunity. That is really an opportunity for you to worship God, no matter what it is that you're doing. In verse 2, do not conform to the world, but be transformed. Don't be shaped by the world on the outside. Be transformed by wisdom, by God's wisdom on the inside. How? By the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, this is something that I run into a lot with college students, and I also run into it with people after college when they're in that part of their life between 25 and 35, thinking about marriage, thinking about their careers, and they're just saying, I just want to do God's will. When they say that, they mean, I want God to tell me if I should marry this person or not. I want God to tell me whether I should move to Tokyo to work with the software company. Or they, I want God to tell me whether I should be in this play or not. I want God to tell me if I should um, move to Nebraska. I want God to make these decisions for me. And if I can just get in and figure out exactly what God's will is, 
then I can, you know, he can kind of make that decision for me and I'll be a part of his plan and I won't be outside of his plan. Because nobody wants to be outside of his plan. And I want you to know that that is actually a pagan idea. That's not a biblical idea. That's not what God is promising you. He doesn't tell you things like that. But he tells you how you should live. He tells you how you should live. And the crazy thing is that if you follow how he tells you to live, you have the freedom to make those kinds of choices. To own those choices. You get to decide who you're going to marry. You get to decide where you're going to work. You get to decide, am I going to have Coke or Diet Coke? You get to decide. But I'm telling you, I've met people that pray like, God, should I get ice in my water or just water? Should we buy this house or that house? Like, which, you know, God's, God's will, his pleasing and perfect will is for you to love your neighbor and love God every day in all that you do, that life would be worship, that life would be worship. Now, I get permission whenever I share something. I see those hands back there. Um, I get permission whenever I share stories like this, so don't think it's too scandalous. So I asked this person if I could share the email that I got from them on Monday morning. Uh, if you send me a, a, a message or email on Monday morning or a text and I don't reply to the next day, it's because I try to stay off my phone on Monday. So just as a um, aside there, just for you to know that. But I got permission from this person. I wanted to read you the email they sent me. Hi, Keith. I started watching the Michael Cohn hearing tonight. And I've just found myself angry, condemning this president, confused about the evil in the world, and ultimately stuck in realizing my own humanness. I say this all to say that I'm wondering about arranging a prayer, like maybe at the church open to all who wish to pray and meditate on these points. Clarity for Americans when it comes time to vote. Justice in Congress, justice in the presidency, kindness in how we approach differences, love of our neighbors and their needs, power of God to give strength, clarity, guidance. Can we make this happen with peace and love? Flows. So Flows works in, she's a, she works with campaigns, political campaigns. Uh, you can ask her which one if you want. Um, she's also a poet. But I want you to know that this is a woman who's seeking wisdom. Do you see it here in, 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 her, in her email to me? She works in this field, and she sees how it's affecting her heart. It's affecting all of our hearts. If you watch the news at all, it's not even if you're in the political field. I mean, it affects us. And she's not saying, like, I know the right answer. I'm sure that, you know, parts of her believe that and parts of us all believe that. But she's asking, can we all come together and humble ourselves before God and pray and ask God to bring justice to our country's capital? Because no matter what side of the fence you're on, 
Guys, there needs to be justice. There needs to be justice across the board. There needs to be healing across the board. And here's a woman sending me an email saying, hey, can we come together and pray? Seek the Lord for the sake of our country and for the sake of our city. You know, we have elections coming up here in our city, uh, not this week, but, um, and not the next week, but the week after that. So next Sunday, because of Flo's email, we're going to come together here at 4.15 for anybody who wants to join us. Um, next Sunday to pray. We're going to pray for our nation's leaders. We're going to pray for our uh, nation. We're going to pray for our city. We're going to pray for the, uh, the mayoral candidates that are uh, being elected. I think the commissioners are being elected too. We'll pray for them. But we're going to pray for justice. We're going to pray for righteousness. We're going to pray for wisdom. We're going to pray. Thank you so much, Flo's for leading us. Thank you. In verse 3, for by grace given to me, the gifts given to me, out of a place of being a receiver, gifts I did not earn. That's what, gift, that's what grace means. You cannot earn it. It is freely given to us. This is where the actual renewing of our mind begins. There is nothing we have done to earn the gift we have been given. In fact, as we understand Scripture, we've done a lot to disqualify ourselves from receiving that gift. We've done a lot of, for my sake, at the disadvantage of the community. For my sake, for my own betterment, at the disadvantage of others. There's been a lot of that in my life. We confess that here tonight. We actually don't believe that God loves us, how that begins to work its way out in our lives and all the ways in which that impacts other people. That we begin to scramble. That we begin to think life is a life of scarcity and we've got to survive for me. We've done a lot to disqualify ourselves, but God gives us grace freely. He says, don't think, Paul says, don't think of yourself higher than you ought. Don't think of yourself higher than you ought. Remember those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he's building up, trying to break down the Jewish thinking that's made them think higher and the Gentile thinking that has made them think higher. And he's trying to say, no, we're all in this together, guys. We're on the same rock in the same universe. Spinning the same direction. We're in this together. Don't think of yourself higher than everybody else. What does he want them to understand? Is he wants them to understand humility. And that is the beginning of wisdom. According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord. Recognizing who God is and who you are. That God is God and I am not. I am a man. I'm a human. And that's what I get to be. Thank you, God, that I don't have to be you. I just get to be a human. To 
beginning of wisdom is humility. And humility, not false humility, part of my tradition I also came from, was always making self-deprecating jokes. I probably still do them every once in a while. But when somebody came to me and they would say, hey, uh, great sermon, Keith, I would say, oh, it's all God. It's all God. It's all God. It's all God. And they were like, no, no, but, but, but you did a, a great job. I really appreciated what you said. Well, God said it. God said it. God said it. You know, I could never receive the affirmation, the love that these people were trying to offer me. It's okay to go, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Really appreciate that. Or what was worse is if I started, wow, it really wasn't that good. Oh, I forgot like 10 points. Oh, man, maybe next week I'll do better, but I doubt it. Um, That's not humility. That's not humility. Humility is actually owning who you really are and owning who God is and owning who you're not. That's humility. Knowing yourself, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses. Don't think of yourself higher. Think of yourself with sober judgment, with humility, with sober judgment. You know, that word sobriety, sober judgment. Coming from from Miami, alcohol was so much a part of the culture there. It was so much a part of the culture. Everybody, you went to somebody's house in Miami, and most of our friends there are from South America or Europe. You know, teenagers had a glass of wine at that dinner or uh, even at lunch, whatever it was. Like, uh, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I, I did parties there. Um, I did big parties on Key Biscayne. For there, I was there for five years. I probably one time had to talk to somebody about drinking too much alcohol. We had alcohol at every party at our church. And coming here to the south has been very, or to West Palm has been interesting. I feel like we're, we're kind of the southern tip of the Bible Belt here. And so there's this shame thing here. In Miami, there's no shame. Like, there's no shame there, right? There's other problems. But here, there's like this shame thing. And it's interesting, people's relationships that I've seen with alcohol. Because in Miami, I didn't even think about it. We just had alcohol at every party and whatever. But I've seen alcohol affecting people in this city. And I, I wonder or, or I, I, I hope to engage them in a place or that they be engaged in a place to begin to ask the question, what is it that I need to intoxicate in myself to deal with life? What part of myself do I need to numb out to deal with life? Because I would tell you that that part of you that you're numbing out actually has something very important to tell you. And it really, really needs to be listened to. So I would just encourage you to think about how much is alcohol a part of my life, my identity? Do I enjoy it or does it, is it working for me as like a medical device, as a medication? 
Because I would say if it is, there's something there that's going to be really important for you to listen to in helping you heal how you view yourself. And he goes on to say, as you think about yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has given you, that faith in the grace of God. In verse 4 and 5, we are one body with many members. The body of Christ. We are called to unity. You know, that's really what flows is in Flo's heart. Right? Looking at this president up there. Going, oh, my God. Um, hard not to get angry, right? At some things happening there. Um, and maybe, maybe you are, uh, consider yourself Republican and there's things happening in D.C. and it's hard for you not to get angry. But you call yourself a Christian and we're here in the same space worshiping this God together. How do we maintain unity? Because Christ calls us, Paul calls us, hey guys, we are one body with many members. We are the body of Christ and we are called to unity. And this, my friends, is a very hard task. And it only happens. It only happens when we have sober judgment of ourselves. When we have humility. When we humble ourselves before God to pray. When we humble ourselves before his word. This past uh, week, I got to go to an environmental summit down in um, Broward County, and it was held by um, Broward County. They were the sponsor for it, and it was on environmental, issue, environmental sustainability and community uh, resilience. And I am not a scientist. I am not a scientist. But I know that we are called to be stewards of this earth. I know that. And it was fascinating to me how few evangelicals were there. Out of the 100 people, there was maybe two or three of us. How come? Why are evangelicals not present in that space? There was a rabbi there. He was a very uh, loud rabbi. He actually was a representative for a district. Uh, he was in the house in Florida um, a while ago. And he began to talk about the Bible, and he was talking about the lies of the Bible and how we needed to basically get away from this narrative that was saying that the world was all just going to burn up because that's what had created this thing where we began to treat the earth as if it was just going to burn up so it didn't matter. And I'm telling you, he wasn't attacking the Word of God, but he was attacking False teaching that has happened in the evangelical church. Because we are actually called to be stewards of this earth and to care for this earth and to pray for God's kingdom, for his ways to come here on earth as they are in heaven. We are to be working and praying towards God's kingdom here and now. Here and now. We are called to build, to worship, to work together 
so that we can care for each other, we can care for the future generations, we can care for other nations, we can care for this entire world which has been broken. And the issues are enormous. Anyone ever feel overwhelmed? You think about the environmental issues, you're like, um, maybe I'll uh, walk to church tonight. Um, maybe I'll just walk around naked. That's the only solution. Um, just walk everywhere. I'm just going to eat grass. And, um, you know, that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. It can be overwhelming because you're like, how do, we, how do we care for this? How do we, like, undo this? Because there are systems in place and policies in place and lobbyists in place and all these things in place. And not only that as a complication, but then you have disagreements over what are the causes and what's the best way forward and how do you heal it. And that's why we need God's wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We have to humble ourselves before God and pray. And read and work and work hard. Take what we're learning from God and apply it to our industries. The possession of wisdom, remember, enables all to cope with life and to achieve what would otherwise be impossible. Through their exceptional wisdom, weak and vulnerable creatures, us, such as the ant and the coney cope and survive against insuperable odds. Verse 6, we all have different gifts. How did we get them? By grace. Each of you here has incredible gifts. Each of you. I've spent enough time with you just by you walking in this door, by conversations we've had, for me to see your gifts and to know how gifted you are. My son started sailing this past year, and he's actually a, a good sailor, apparently. But the, the boats he's sailing now, you have to sail them with somebody else. They have a crew now. It's two people. The biggest issue in that sport of sailing is not who's the best sailor. The biggest issue is who can work together. The best team wins. And we are called, we are called to renew our minds to seek the wisdom of God. We are called to this oneness. And we are called to work together. We're called to use the gifts God has given us. If it's serving, serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's encouraging, encourage. If it's giving, give generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. If, if it's showing mercy, do it cheerfully. Do it. All of you have gifts. Use them. Bring them to the table. We need them. We need the gifts to see our world healed. And the thing that we do so often, we discredit ourselves, or we think, oh, I'm just an ant. But the wisdom of God the wisdom of God enables us together to overcome insurmountable odds. The grace of Christ. He was wisdom, living, walking wisdom. He 
was is righteousness. The wise disadvantaged self to advantage the community. That's the God we serve. The God who disadvantaged himself for the sake of the community. While the fool serves self at the expense of the community. The wise enrich community. The fool impoverish it. The foolish impoverish it. Which are you? Are you foolish or are you wise? I'm so convicted by God's word and by his call to wisdom. The good news is, whether you consider yourself a fool or you consider yourself wise, is that God will graciously, freely give you his wisdom Give you himself. All he says you have to do is ask for it. Let us pray.